All right, welcome back to the Young Turks. As a lot of you know, the third hour now consists of a segment we're calling the conversation where we talk to people we agree with, but people we don't agree with as well, and and the whole range and and learning from folks on top of that as well. And then the last half an hour is, of course, just for the members. TYT.com slash join to get that. Okay, joining me now is Leticia Beecham. She's a federal politics reporter for a Center for Public Integrity, and she's written about transgender political candidates and movement. Leticia, welcome to the Young Turks. Thank you for having me. No problem. So, how many transgender Americans ran for office in 2018, and how many won? Yes, so at least 51 ran last year and zero one and nine at the congressional level and none of those nine even secured a party vote and none of them also made it past their primary. Yes, now they didn't get a lot of press coverage outside of the Young Turks. We had Brianna Westbrook and Christine Holquist, etc. on many times. Uh, and I, I believe they're uh, definitely going to break through. I think they're amazing candidates and uh, have great uh, stories and and have the right policies. Uh, but it was tough, and it, and it's tough for a number of reasons. Uh, one of them is obvious, the bias that still exists in the country. Uh, but the other one is about money. Uh, so let's talk about uh, how disadvantaged they were in, in terms of fundraising. Right, so with transgender candidates, they don't have anything that's really dedicated dedicated to them. You have this one pack Trans United Fund that does exist, but just like the trans uh, the transgender community at large in America, they suffer from a lot of things, whether that is poverty, lack of education, employment. So if you have a small segment of the population that does not have money, what will that mean for you politically? And what we really wanted to do with this story um, is talk about about a little bit, what does it mean when you don't have the financial capital to really play in democracy on the federal level? Yeah, and so the situation for Trans United Fund is not great, right? So I want to talk about that and and give people context as to why these losses might have happened. And by the way, there's victories the year before for trans candidates. So we'll come back and talk about that as well and see what the difference is. But yes, so how bad a financial shape is the Trans United Fund? Yeah, it's pretty bad. They really just don't have a lot of money. I stated in my piece that they haven't raised a single federal dollar since they formed in 2016. Now, they have raised a lot of money on the local level, which is where you saw part of the victory with Philippe Cunningham running for a city council in Minneapolis, as well as Andrea Jenkins. However, none of that has translated to a viable congressional candidate, and also none of that has transfer to having a donor who's willing to support them on the congressional level. So as of now, the last time I checked their FEC records, there is no money in the bank. And actually, they made a mistake with contributing to Alexandra Chandler's campaign because they gave a contribution to her campaign from their C4 arm, which is illegal. So it still is very much a startup organization. They're still trying to figure out what they're doing. And in the process, they're not really having a lot of donor support to help them wade through the water of electoral spending. Yeah, but Leticia, couldn't Caitlyn Jenner just chip in here? I hear she cares a lot about the cause. 
I hear that as well, but I don't know if she would pass TransUnited Fund's uh, litmus test on policies. Caitlin is not, last I checked, she's not pro-immigration. Uh, uh, she's been a staunch Trump supporter. And while TransUnited Fund says that it is uh, uh, nonpartisan in that degree of the candidates it will support, it is still considered, it still considers itself to be a very black a very trans-centric, pro-immigrant experience organization. And based on Caitlyn Jenner's um, track record, I, I don't know if she would align with their ideology. Yeah, it's kind of uh, sad that uh, you know one person in the country is making a good deal of money, uh, you know, trumpeting uh, her transgender status while not supporting any of the other policies uh, that affects that community. And in the beginning, when she was a huge Trump fan. Not even supporting the policy, you know, basically going against the policies of the transgender community itself. Whether you you know have difference on immigration or not, Trump is is incredibly anti-transgender in his decisions. Um, but you you brought up something in your story that I had not considered, and I thought it was really interesting and powerful. The second problem that uh, transgender candidates have is um, they don't have a lot of personal wealth, and and. It's not just the Republican Party, Democratic Party too. When they're choosing candidates, the first thing they ask is, how much money do you have? And then how many people do you know that have a lot of money? Those are literally the first two questions that they ask. So that's gonna put, on average, transgender folks at a huge disadvantage, isn't it? Yes, it definitely is, and I, I found the perfect example of that um, in the candidate profiles that were in my piece um, of Deja Alvarez, who is running for city council at large in Philadelphia, and she's been very active in the LGBTQ plus community in Philadelphia, whether that is HIV/AIDS awareness to stopping harassment from police. And when she went through a recent candidate training, the stress was on the dollars and. And the stress usually comes from candidates across the aisles, I would say. Who do you know? And who do they know? Go all the way back to elementary school and try to connect with that person and see if you can hit them up for money. But if you're coming from a community, especially a newly formed community, because Deja's not originally from Philadelphia, you don't have that network. And so what do you do when you don't have that network? You don't have that support. You can't call up anyone to say, hey, can you give me $100,000 for my campaign? And the answer is you, you try to figure it out and you try to get some backups support. But right now, if you don't have those connections as the a lot of people in the transgender community don't, you, you, you might, you will definitely be at a disadvantage. Right. And uh, you know, the Democratic establishment talks a lot about how they're for gay rights. Uh, but when it comes to picking candidates, um, we have at a bare minimum accidental discrimination against transgender people in this country. And I'm being kind by putting it that way. Whereas Justice Democrats had several transgender candidates. Why? Is it because they wanted to make sure to get diversity? Maybe partly, but it's not the main reason why. The main reason why was because they were the best candidates in that race. And we didn't mind that they didn't have money. See, that's just the, that's the biggest difference between progressives and democratic establishment. So, uh, okay, now I wanna go to the victories though. Uh, so there were some famous victories uh, in the last two years for uh, trans candidates. So can you tell us about that? Yeah, so 
course, I would say arguably the most famous that people know is Danica Brome. And Trends United Fund definitely did give to her campaign $5,000. Um, and there's, of course, Brianna Westbrook. And then you have a few other local victories. And Trends United Fund was a part of that. Um, but one thing that uh, struck me in my reporting and after speaking with Hayden is how important being intersectional is to them. Um, Hayden said to me, and it's in the story as well, that one of the reasons why they didn't give to um, Rome as much as they did to Philippe Cunningham, who's the first black transgender man elected to office ever, and Andrea Jenkins, who was the first black trans woman elected to office in Minneapolis as well, is because they are at the forefront of what they deem as priority politics. And part of that is making sure that you put front and center people who are the most marginalized. And to Trans United Fund, uh, Dana Carone, even though she is a transgender woman, she is white. And uh, another thing that really struck me in my reporting as well was of the nine candidates that did run for congressional office last year, they were also white and many were from wealthy backgrounds, right? And so I, you will see victories on the local level. The challenge is how do you create a Philippe Cunningham? How do you create, recreate, I should say, an Andrea Jenkins on a national level? And after speaking with TransUnited Fund and other candidates, there is a, a huge sense of awareness that the national level is not completely out of scope, but how to tackle that beast is definitely going to be an uphill battle. Well, well what's going on in Minneapolis? The two out of the 13 city council members are transgender when like, there's very little victories anywhere else in the country. Why Minneapolis? Right, and I remember asking uh, Philippe Cunningham this. I said, why would you want to live there? It's cold, and I don't think of like other black people. Um, but Philippe definitely brought something up to me, which is that Minneapolis was actually one of the first places, even before the federal government, to uh, bar discrimination against gender expression. And so that what you're seeing now between Philippe and Andrea is kind of a byproduct of a history of a of a city that has been a little bit ahead of the curve uh, nationally as far as its acceptance of LGBTQ plus people and allowing people to live how they want to live. Yes, uh, and look, I, I have a little bit more hope too because for example, Christine Hockwist was not a national candidate. She was candidate for governor in, in the state of Vermont, but she did win her primary. And so she was a democratic candidate in that race. So I, I see uh, some progress. Not just in Minneapolis, but they are definitely leading in this category. Uh, Leticia Beecham, uh, thank you so much for joining us. We really re appreciate it. Thank you. Have a good night. You too. All right, when we come back, we're going to have another great guest for you guys. And this uh, issue is a really interesting one about how corporations um, take over the government in a way that you didn't expect through some uh, spheres of influence, and especially uh, the opioid industry. So, a great interview. We'll be right back. All right, uh, back on the Young Turks. Uh, joining me now is Jonathan Marks. He is the author of The Perils of Partnership, Industry Influence, Institutional Integrity and Public Health. He's also director of bioethics program at Penn State. He has had fellowships at Harvard, Georgetown, and John Hopkins. And uh, and also had a famous TED talk called In Praise of Conflict, which I'd actually, if we have time, would love to get to, because I, I agree with you on uh, 
uh, how conflict can be awesome. Uh, but <laughs> thank you for joining us. We appreciate it, Jonathan. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, no problem. So you talk. I want you to explain the concept, and I think I have a perfect example of it. So uh, you know, a lot of the politicians oftentimes say, "Well, we're, we're going to bring in industry experts to help us figure out this issue," uh, and you say that there's all of Washington says bravo, but you say there's a problem with that. What's the problem? Well, absolutely. The problem is that when you collaborate with corporations to solve public health problems like obesity, um, the opioid epidemic, cancer, or indeed climate change, what you tend to get is a framing of those problems in ways that um, most favor the interests of your industry collaborators. So obesity gets framed, for example, when you partner with the soda industry, obesity gets framed as a problem of personal responsibility, energy balance, the need for physical activity and exercise, and instead um, downplays the role of soda and these companies' other products in the obesity epidemic. Uh, Jonathan, sometimes when I make points like that, people will accuse me of uh, being a conspiracy theorist that, that corporations would like to maximize profits. So I, I charge you with the same thing. Are you saying that when Pepsi cooperates with the government that they don't have the American people's best interests in mind, that they actually just want to maximize their profit? So I'm not a conspiracy theorist and I don't believe that governments are inherently good and that corporations are inherently evil. I think each is capable of good or ill, but understandably corporations act to promote and protect their commercial interests, their bottom line. And I argue it's the responsibility of government agencies to look after us, to protect and promote public health and other forms of the public good. Yes, um, and, and of course I'm being facetious there uh, in the, although people have literally said that about me, like, oh, you think corporations want to maximize profit, conspiracy. <laughs> no, that would actually be the law. Uh, and, and so, look, and to your point, corporations aren't evil, they don't have any morality at all, they're amoral, they're legal fictions. And sometimes they'll do wonderful things, they'll, they, they fight for diversity, why? Because their customers are diverse. Um, and some corporations will fight for Muslim rights. Why? Because there's 1.6 billion Muslim customers in the world. So, uh, but bottom line is the bottom line. And, and it's being at best uh, naive to say that, hey, we should ask corporations what they want. Which leads me to the example that I wanted to run by you, Jonathan. Uh, Hillary Clinton did not want the transcripts of her speeches at Goldman Sachs and the other big banks to come out. They eventually did come out and we found out that she basically asked them for help in figuring out financial regulation after the 2008 crash. Now, do you think that that would be a good place to turn to for advice on how to help, given that those are the same banks that actually caused the crash in the first place? I do not think that one should collaborate with those who have a vested income in the outcome of public policy. You should not collaborate with them in the formulation of public policy. Now, it's certainly legitimate in a public forum, for example, for Congress to hold hearings at which representatives of industry make representations. Industry can respond to calls for notice and comment on proposed regulations. That's one thing, but it's entirely another when you invite corporations who will be affected by a policy to sit right the table and help you formulate or draft that policy. That is clearly problematic in my view. Yeah, and look, I'm gonna ask you a question I don't know that you have the answer to, but um, 
Why do you think these politicians have gotten into this groupthink? And it's not just the politicians, by the way, it's also the media. Well, companies are wonderful you know, patrons of charity and love to do charity and they're wise and sage and we have to go to them and ask them out of the goodness of their heart, how do you wanna help the American people, whether it's the bankers or pharmaceutical industries? Why do you think that they believe that? I think um, it sounds better, it feels better to avoid conflict. But of course, what we know is that conflict is really essential. That's the issue that I flagged in my TED talk. The relationship between regulators and the regulated should be one of tension, struggle, and sometimes direct conflict. If a corporation isn't complaining about a regulator, we should be worried about what the regulator is doing. Well, so I totally agree with that. I think also, not in place of, but also the fact that those same politicians get a tremendous amount of money from those industries might be relevant. And in the case of television, well, actually most of media for a long, long time, the fact that their top advertisers are those same companies might also be relevant. So, uh, so is, I think you do have to yeah. still address the problem of campaign finance, lobbying, and the like. But it's important that we don't just focus attention on individuals' relationships with corporations and their financial um, relationships with corporations. We should also look at institutions. So it is problematic when universities, when entire government agencies um, enter into these collaborations with industry. So that would be one of the takeaways, I think, from my book, is not just to focus on individual relationships, which are clearly important, but also to take into account the effect of institutional relationships, which are widespread and have very powerful cumulative impacts. So can you give us a quick example of, of one of those that is not in the political sphere? Well, I mean, there are lots of examples in public health. Um, one of the examples I talk about in the book has to do with a UN agency partnering with Coca-Cola to improve sanitation in schools in rural India. Now, no one would object to the overall goal of improving sanitation in schools. It's a gender equity issue. The girls drop out before the boys if the sanitation is poor. But to partner with Coca-Cola in a, an initiative which in return for a very small investment in Coca-Cola's part, they had a multi-month advertising cam campaign with a telethon and the Coke logos splashed everywhere. And the UN agency had a mission to promote sustainability. But by entering into this collaboration with Coke and essentially promoting the consumption of sugar-sweetened beverages made from scarce local water and sold in plastic bottles, that is neither sustainable from an environmental nor a public health point of view. Yes, and I also agree with what the, the point you made earlier about balance. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't hear out the different companies if they're the ones being regulated. Of course, the government should hear them out. Uh, but they're not their representatives, they're our representatives. So they should be one of the voices they listen to, not the one that dominates and is asked to be a partner in, in making those decisions. Which and, then, and sorry, go ahead, John. No, I was gonna say, and indeed, I think a fundamental mistake we make is achieving common ground with industry does not necessarily promote the common good. In fact, often it takes off the table the kinds of measures that would indeed promote the public health and other forms of the public good. Yeah, I, there's a thousand compromises we can come to uh, with the food industry uh, when maybe the answer is not to compromise, but to ban high fructose corn syrup, right? Which well, the industry would be 100% against and would never compromise on. 
Well, yes, you're never going to get certain kinds of public health intervention if you require agreement with the industry actors affected by that intervention. Sure, allow them to make public representations on whether or not to introduce a soda tax or ban high fructose corn syrup or whatever it might be. But you, the policymakers, have a responsibility to make your decision on, on, on your own. And to insulate yourself from these strategies of influence that corporations tend to use all the way across the board from lobbying, revolving door and campaign finance, all the way through to public-private partnerships. All right, Jonathan, now let's get to the most egregious case, which is the pharmaceutical industry. How is the government working with them and what results is that leading to? Well, I just wrote a piece in the conversation in which I talked about what the NIH did, the National Institutes of Health did in 2017. They launched a partnership initiative to deal with the opioid epidemic, and they wheeled in a whole host of pharmaceutical companies for guidance and consultation, including Purdue Pharma, a company that had pled guilty in 2007 to misleading doctors patients and regulators about the risk of abuse and the risk of addiction of OxyContin. And by the way, having pleaded guilty, then according to court filings in Massachusetts in the last few weeks, carried on these practices for another decade. And so while they were meeting with the NIH, they were placing ads in the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal describing themselves as partners in the fight against the opioid epidemic. And all the while, they were planning to continually expand the market in opioids. But even if you leave aside the egregious example of that one company, if you partner with pharmaceutical companies in order to address the opioid epidemic, the focus will be on developing new drugs. And perhaps we do need some new, less addictive drugs, but we should not abandon other potential interventions to deal with both pain management and with the opioid epidemic. So Jonathan, in the brief time that we have, I mentioned your talk on in praise of conflict. Uh, I'm told by Washington, you usually screamed at me that uh, we need to all have unity. Of course, there's a question of unity about what? <laughs> we don't agree, so I don't know what I'm supposed to unify around. But, uh, but why do you praise conflict? I think we totally recognize that conflict is, is necessary. We recognize that as among the branches of government, the separation of powers tells us that the Supreme Court should not collaborate with the White House on the next generation of healthcare reform because its job is to hold the other branches of government accountable. And it can only do that by tussling with them rather than climbing into bed with them. And similarly, as between corporations, we recognize that they should compete with each other, fight with each other. If they um, collaborate and price fix or divide markets, we the consumers suffer. So we get the need for conflict as between branches of government. We get the need for conflict as between corporations and other members of the private sector. Why do we think we can solve our most pressing public health and environmental problems by public-private collaboration? I argue in that sphere, we need conflict too. Uh, couldn't agree more. Uh, conflict helps you sort out who's right, who's wrong. Having uh, the uh, cops and the bank robbers uh, come to an agreement on how to rob the bank is not helpful. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> so everybody check out jonathanhmarks.org slash book uh, to get the perils of partnership. Uh, Jonathan, thank you so much for joining us on the Young Turks. Thank you so much, it's been a pleasure. All right, uh, we're gonna take a quick break here, come back for the members. We're gonna do a whole heap of stuff in the post game. I'm gonna tell you about how Congressman Dan Cranshaw, uh, he's uh, one of the rising stars of the Republican Party attacked me. How did I counterattack? That was super fun. 
Uh, and we'll touch on some of the stories we did not get to uh, in the show and give you a little bit of more detail as well. So tyt.com slash join to become a member. And if you wanna try it out for a week for free, go to tyt.com slash trial. All right, we'll see you guys there.